Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Ah, it's really great to be here. I feel like I was in this room not too long ago. Actually, uh, yesterday, Lisa and I were here with about 30 amazing parents, and we had a great day together talking about how to thrive as families. Um, Here's my family. Uh, Lisa's here somewhere in the room. Where is she? All right, there she is. (laughs) And uh, we've got three young adult kids. We were talking from a book yesterday, a couple of books we wrote, but particularly one called Belonging and Becoming, Creating a Thriving Family Culture. And um, Lisa and I work with a group called Reimagine. Uh, We call ourselves a Center for Integral Christian Practice, and that's like San Francisco language for saying we're really passionate about helping people apply the teachings of Christ to the messy details of everyday life. That's my life project. It's what I travel around the world getting to do. And um, we spend about a month, uh, a month and a half a year in Australia. And I realized as Sam was introducing this morning, we got lots of connections in the Church of Christ family here in Australia. In fact, I went with a group um, from Sydney to Uganda and Kenya. If anybody knows Paul Ravenstein, Wild Paul, I was with him over there, uh, you know, not too long ago, and uh, lots, lots of stuff like that. Um, I, uh, I want to tell you, start with a story about something that happened uh, many years ago now. I'd written my first book, and I got a, letter, uh, a curious email from someone. This person emailed me and said, um, my name is Shinko Rick Sloan. I am a Zen Buddhist priest, and I live at a monastery north of San Francisco. And he said, um, I, uh, I, I saw your book in uh, the downtown bookstore, and I felt like you're a Christian that I could talk about something going on with me. And I'm wondering, would I ever be welcome to come to any of your meetings or anything? And I immediately emailed him back, and I said, come have dinner at our house. And so Shinko shows up at our house wearing his, his robes as he usually does. And he was quite nervous. He told me later, I thought you were going to be one of those crazy fundamentalist TV preachers or something. I just got, got baggage about Christians. And, um, and we sat down to the dinner table and I said, tell me about what led you to, to contact me. And he said, well, Mark, when I was a teenager, I had an encounter with Christ. And uh, it changed my life. But there was, uh, there was a toxic environment in the church that I was a part of. There was a lot of emphasis on how we were right, everyone else is wrong, and going to hell. And it felt so negative, and not about life now, but only about life in the future. And um, it turned me off, and I started exploring other spiritualities, Eastern spiritual paths, and that led me eventually to Zen Buddhism. But he said, this is why I wanted to talk with you, because when I sit zazen, that's Zen meditation technique, he said, when I'm doing my sitting meditation, I hear Jesus calling to me, and I don't know what to do with that. I'm about to go through Dharma transmission, which is like your full ordination as a Zen Buddhist priest, and I'm putting it off until I get this Jesus thing figured out. And so that was the beginning of a really wonderful friendship with my friend uh, Shinko. And I remember, um, and it was really interesting because he didn't identify as a Christian, or he was very hesitant about that because he didn't think he would fit. But I was always impressed with how how sensitive he was and how, uh, and how much he would spend hours a day meditating on the parables of Jesus as he sat on the cushion. And um, during one of our conversations, I said, Rick, um, what, do you, uh, what do you think about Jesus? Like, you know, what do you believe about Jesus? And I knew how I would answer a question like that, bup, 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 facts in my head. Rick broke down in tears. <laughs> and he said, I adore Christ. I, um, like, I want to be like him. I want to follow his way. And he said, Mark, I don't know if you or the people you know would think of me as an Orthodox Christian, but that's what I can say to you. So this often happens in our world. Someone who is considered the outsider 
um, kind of shames some of us insiders into digging deeper into our faith, right? And Rick definitely did that for me. And one day we were walking along, and um, uh, it was our first, our second time walking or uh, meeting together, and we looked like a strange pair. This like kind of like Mission District San Francisco hipster and this mi- middle-aged. Uh, Zen priest walking around in his robes, and he's got a little bit of limp. And so people always wondered when we went into a cafe, what is, what is going on with this odd couple? But we were walking along, and I said, Rick, I, I don't know that much about faith traditions outside my own, so maybe you can help me understand a little bit. What, um, what, uh, what, what do you believe, or what, uh, what are you about? When you wake up in the morning, what do you want to be on about in the day? as someone who follows the Zen Buddhist way. Without missing a beat, he said, Mark, here's the four noble truths that I believe to be accurate, and here is the eightfold path. When I wake up in the morning, I want to deepen my experience of living out this way. And I was super impressed that in about three or four minutes, he could articulate this so succinctly and so clearly to say, this is what I'm on about every day. Then he asked me, Mark, you're a follower of Jesus. What do, you, what do you wake up to get on about in the day? And I'm embarrassed to say I hesitated. Like I didn't have a quick answer. The first thing I wanted to say is, Rick, here's what I believe about events 2,000 years ago that I came to believe in my head about Jesus. And then I got a little smarter and I said, well, I wake up every day And I want to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. And I felt kind of good about that, that I'd recovered. (laughs) But it still haunted me that most of what I shared, well, for one thing, it was a bit vague compared to an eightfold path. But it was also, like, it, it started making me reflect on, or caused me to reflect that my Christian faith as I'd learned it, was mostly about looking back to the events of 2,000 years ago, to the Christ phenomenon, which we should all be grateful for, right? That it changed the world. But I, so I'd look back there, and then I'd been trained to think about my Christian faith as also looking way forward into the future. At the end of my life, or at the end of time, and those two places. But in the middle here, like where I actually live, that's where I struggled to come up with a, a clear or compelling response to what I get on about every day as a follower of Jesus. And it haunted me. And I think that it represents some of the, I would say, a crisis in the reputation of Christian faith in places like Sydney and San Francisco, where we are, we've, we've been good at telling a story about the ultimate future, and about very impactful things from the past, but we struggle a bit more to talk about how we're being changed and transformed today through this. Interestingly, Jesus' message was all about the here and now. And I'm going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and it's all about how to live life on planet Earth in relationship with the Creator and harmony with others. And if you look in the Gospels, I think the most succinct place that Jesus describes his message to us is, time's up, God's kingdom is here, change your life and believe the message. It's something to respond to with our whole selves in this moment. So I have asked for a long time, what are the gaps between how Christ lived and what he invites us into and what my experience is on a daily basis? And, um, and it, those gaps sort of pain me a bit. Um, I know them for myself, but it's much easier to look at you and see your gaps and, I, and, and point the finger that way, but, right? But I know I have them too. And I'm very interested in how we might close those gaps. And so one of the questions that uh, me and my colleagues started asking is if we're experiencing a real gap between the the life that Jesus made available through his life, death, and resurrection, and the life we're experiencing, where's the breakdown happening? And um, my sense is that it has to do with how we learned to be disciples. And um, I'm uh, going to make some generalizations here. 
I, maybe they don't apply to you, and I kind of hope they don't, but I think this has been some common themes for uh, Christians who have been influenced by the West, is that um, our discipleship has tended to be individualistic. How we heard the gospel tended to be about me and my re- vertical relationship with the creator. Um, it's tended to be information-driven. I got the impression that if you wanted to be a good follower of Jesus, you just need to learn the Bible well, listen to enough really good sermons. Nowadays, listen to like tons of podcasts. If you really want to nerd out, um, you know, read some theology. And if you get enough ideas in your head, you'll magically be transformed in a, into a different kind of person that looks like Jesus. It hasn't happened. Like I memorized chapters of the Bible, books of the Bible. I, I, as a teenager, I totally geeked out on it, but I still knew it wasn't, just knowing things doesn't change us. It has to go deeper than that. Here, here's an example, a painful example of this. I was teaching up in um, Marin County, north of San Francisco. This is where uh, LucasArts, Star Wars, Industrial Lights and Magic all went down. And um, I was teaching at a church there about this gap. And a woman raised her hand and said, um, I know what you're talking about, Mark. She said, uh, a lot of people here in Marin are post-Christian, but they find some like kind of spiritual practices meaningful. So a lot of people, she, she said, a lot of people practice meditation techniques. She said, um, I work in palliative care and I accompany people in their last days and hours of life. And what pains me is to see the difference between the everyday person here in Marin County and the people who identify as Christians and how they engage the last moments of their lives. She said most of the everyday people here in Marin are breathing deep. They're they're practicing quiet and stillness and consenting to this passage as a natural thing that happens. She said almost to the person, the people that I accompany who identify as Christians they're freaked out about dying. And so are their friends and family who surround them. Everybody's crying like um, in agony about this happening. And she said, it doesn't make sense to me because as Christians, we have the story that says perfect love casts out fear. There's no fear in love. And that when your body gives up, you get to spend forever with the creator of the universe in a paradise. Why would we be weeping bitterly when we're about to experience this? And what I see going on there is the head information has not come into the whole person, right? It's a true and good faith belief, that we're, but the people who are bitterly freaking out about dying are not living in the truth. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus came, offered his life, Um, you're in this room because he wants to give you and I uh, the ability to live in the truth. Do you feel me? Does that make sense? And so we need something more than just information. We've got to get it down into our bones. Uh, A third characteristic that I think is related to that is sometimes faith, we've related to it in a way that's disconnected from the everyday details of life. I would even say sometimes we, we tend to be dishonest. There's a it's a little, little bit of that I, I struggle with even being up here on the stage this morning because I thought very carefully about what I'd look like this morning. I'm aware I have a little pimple on my forehead. I'm not, I'm not used to the humidity, and I wanted to come up, present myself well. So you, you're going to get an impression of something that's a little more glossy than the, the way things actually are. I grew up, I woke up grumpy this morning because I have jet lag and things like that. And where... Where we really need living truth is in the messy details of our lives. Um, And so in contrast to these typical ways, how did Jesus make disciples? He didn't do it just with individuals. He did it in community. I know you guys have been in a series about that. So we don't work out this journey of living in the truth in isolation. You can't just listen to podcasts and it's going to happen. You've got, you've got to be on a journey with other people. And in places like Sydney and San Francisco, we're struggling with alienation. We're struggling uh, with, with our technology to, uh, and social media to find ways to actually have meaningful life touch with one another because that's integral to how, how we're going to work out our faith. 
Second, Jesus taught not just by giving information, but through action and practice. And so he invited people to take risks and go on adventures with him. I'm going to invite you to take some risks with me, some small risks with me this morning. Um, In a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to move your bodies around a little bit and adopt some postures. In about 12 minutes, I'm going to invite you to stand up and engage with one other person. And that's going to feel a little risky and awkward because I've learned that, that we've got to take a risk in order to integrate these truths into our lives. So um, in whole, I'd suggest that if we want to close the gap, we need to have a compelling vision or imagination for the kind of life that is possible in the way of Jesus. And along with that, we need to take on practices that help us integrate that, that compelling vision into our everyday lives together. And I want to use the Beatitudes to give us a picture of that because it's an interesting kind of beginning point or summary of the Sermon on the Mount. I like to think of the Beatitudes as the table of contents for the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is like, I'm going to, uh, in this three-chapter message, I'm going to talk about these nine themes about what human beings go through. I'm gonna, and then, I'm gonna, in detail, I'm going to tell some stories and give some teaching that t- will touch your heart and experience in these nine areas of your life. You'll see where I'm going with this in just a minute. But let me, let's, let's look at the Beatitudes for a second. Jesus gets up on this mountainside. This is, this is literally the place where he, it, uh, people think that he, he shared this message. He meant to just talk with his disciples, But in that time, everybody would just sort of show up and be curious and uh, wonder what was going on. And he says, blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger for justice, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and blessed are you. So Jesus is um, using this word there called makarios, and it means something like, oh my goodness, that person really has it going on. They are like Beyonce and Jay-Z, okay? It was a term like, wow, this person has beauty, attractiveness, wealth, success, good reputation, blessed. But as you'll see, Jesus is using this term for the wrong people, the poor, the meek, the morning, what's going on here? And he's sort of turning the tables or challenging our understanding about who gets to have the good stuff in life. One of my mentors, Dallas Willard, when he would teach on this, I remember he would try and say, you got to picture it like this, that Jesus is among this crowd of people and he starts calling out the most unlikely people is blessed. He sees this... um, He sees this guy who barely has clothes on his back and uh, who is visibly hungry. And he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, blessed are the poor, brother. You're going to inherit the earth. Yours is the kingdom. Um, he He keeps looking around and he sees this woman in dark clothes, which was a sign of mourning in their culture. And um, he looks at her sensitively and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, sister. God's comfort can come to you now. He sees, uh, he sees a simple day laborer, and, um, and he goes to him, someone who is like the lowest status possible in that culture. He says, blessed are the meek. You're going to inherit the earth, brother. You're not left out. You're not left behind. And that's one take on this whole thing about the, the Beatitudes, these, these curious blessings that I think apply to us today. It's so easy for us to think that goodness and the good life are only for the most privileged, the best looking, the most successful. And what Jesus is trying to say to us is, no one gets left out, no one gets left behind. The good things of life, the flourishing you're created for, is available to you, whatever your story, whatever your situation, wherever you find yourself today, in the now, you can say yes and consent to the life you were created for. So that's a simple understanding of what's going on in the Beatitudes, but I'm going to complicate it a little bit. 
Only the first three are things that we would look at and go, who wants to be poor? Who wants to be low and meek? Who wants to be um, mourning? Those aren't things that sound that good. But then there's some good qualities. Uh, there's, it's awesome to hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, to be someone who's merciful, to be someone who's pure in heart, to be a peacemaker. And this is why I think what Jesus is doing is introducing nine themes of the kingdom life. And so as I go through the Beatitudes, I'm going to make some contrasts between life as we, and the mentality we start off in from the time we came down the chute and out into this world and then the transformed life that's possible for us as we learn to live life with God. Does that make sense? I was um, just in Africa uh, this summer with a group, um, and I was teaching pastors about the Beatitudes, and I, I was using this, and you, if anybody's ever been to like Uganda, you know, you got to be really interesting to keep people's attention. And so I'm running across the stage saying, this is like it's like in the kingdom of darkness, and this is like it's like in the kingdom of light, and I'm going to do it for you this morning, okay? But I need your help with this because we're, I'm going to show a posture that's the posture of the kingdom of darkness, and then I'm going to run across the stage and say, this is the posture of the kingdom of light. Another way we could say it is, when, we're, when we were born, we were born with distorted, a distorted sense of who we are, who God is, and what life is about. Inaccurate. Um, and part, part of the invitation of the gospel is to learn to see clearly what life really is. Another, I think in my mind, another word for the kingdom of God is reality. This is what reality is. You feel me on this? Paul said um, he, that Christ has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us in the kingdom of the son he loves, the kingdom of light. And what I hope you'll see as we do this is a contrast, that I'm in, you and I are in the process of moving our whole being from distortion and unreality into a coherent, accurate, real sense of what, who God is, who we are, what life is about. Make sense? Okay, we come clear here in, in a minute. But the first beatitude um, is about, uh, says, blessed are the poor or the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor? Poverty is when you don't have enough. And when we feel like we don't have enough, it's, it's one of our base instincts. It's called fight or flight. It happens the, uh, in the amygdala part of your brain. We, we come into this world freaked out. Am I going to stay alive? I'm hungry. It's cold. And when we live in that sense of fight or flight, our first instinct is to, to grasp our hands as tight as we can. So do that with me. Just squeeze your hands really tight. I don't have enough. I don't have what I need right now. I'm living in desperation. And it tends to lead us in our psychological experience to worry, anxiety, and a sense of scarcity and greediness. I need, I need something I don't have. And, I, and you live in that close-handed desperation. Squeeze your hands really hard. How does it feel to live that way? Tight, desperate, tense, and so that's our natural state, worry and anxiety. The gospel is inviting us to move into the kingdom of light, where we don't have enough on our own, but we're invited to learn to trust in God's abundance, to relax our hands, so do this, open your hands, to receive what we need with thanks, to ask for what we lack with confidence, and to share what we have with one another. And to, to, to live this prayer, say it with me. Lord, lead us in the way of trust. Second beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. <laughs> well, what a strange thing to say. Um, it doesn't seem blessed to be in pain or in mourning. And our first instinct in the kingdom of darkness is when we experience small or large traumas, Pain, the pain of, of existence is to want to escape it as soon as possible. So do this posture with me. Like, I, I'm experiencing some pain. I'm seeing something painful. I'm feeling pain. 
oh, I want to get away from it. Um, parents easily see this with their kids. I'm staying with somebody who has a three-year-old right now, and I've seen this child have pain. And it's so easy to want to be like, distract them from it. Look, look at this cool picture, you know, video on my phone. Or here, do you want to have some gummy candies? Like somehow to get them out of that sad state. And then you and I have gotten even better at this as adults where we've gotten, we've become geniuses at pain avoidance, you know, like, like binge watching and scrolling social media somewhere down in there is something that's going to bring me some comfort or, you know, one more glass of wine or one more swipe of the credit card or something that will anesthetize me from the hard things of life, right? And with incredible wisdom, Jesus said, actually, running from pain will not bring you what you want. In the kingdom of light, we learn to face our pain. So put your hands on your heads. Ancient people would tear their clothes, pour ashes on their heads, sit down on the ground, and cry out to God and say, this is the pain I'm feeling right now. I'm going to sit with it. I'm going to wait for you to bring me the comfort that I need right now. I'm not going to run from it, but I am holding it here and hoping that you will bring comfort. And over and over in scripture, the promise is peace that doesn't make sense comes to those who will sit in the pain. Third beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Our first instinct in the kingdom of darkness is to try and feel good about who we are, that we have worth, by comparing ourselves to other people. So do like this. You started doing this when you were young. Who's who's the tallest? Who's the best at sports? Who's the prettiest in the class? Am I greater than or less than you? Do you know this mentality? You've been there, right? And psychologists suggest we do this because we're trying to build a sense of self-worth. Do you think that doing this leads to us actually having the self-worth we want? It doesn't because there's always, you're always going to be, uh, there's always going to be someone who comes along who trumps whatever you, you, where you were on top, right? Um, I think of myself as pretty fit for an American, but then like, I, I come and like I speak in the Sutherland Shire sometimes at churches with all these surfers. Guys 10 years older than me are just jacked. They got six packs. So I was up here and now all the way down here. Now I, now I feel bad about myself, right? Jesus invites us to get out of that game of comparing and to learn in the kingdom of light to establish a sense of self that's not based on comparisons, but it's based on inherent worth. Put your hand on your heart. What scripture says about you is that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. You are are an image bearer of the divine. And so if we can learn to internalize that, we can get out of the game of comparisons and competition. Because that was exhausting. Um, And actually affirm who we are. But everyone else is equally of the same worth we are. And so that invites us to treat each other, to serve each other, and treat each other with deep dignity and respect. That's what real humility is. So this beatitude invites us, you can say it with me, Lord, lead us in the way of humility. Fourth beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger for justice. That might sound different than the translation you've heard. This is the more accurate one to the original Greek. It means just living that lives according to how God would like to see the world. Um, Our first instinct when we look at the overwhelming problems in the world is learned helplessness in psychological terms. In more popular terms, apathy. The problems are overwhelming. We just throw our hands up. So do this with me. What can can we possibly do about all these things that are messed up in our world? What can I do about even what's messed up inside of me? We just throw our hands up in resignation as if we're powerless. And some of our inaccurate theology even encourages us. Well, you're just a worm. You're just a sinner. How could you be any different than that? How could the world be any different than that? Of course it's messed up because we're all broken. This isn't what the Sermon on the Mount says about us. In the kingdom of light, we learn to own our power as change makers. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. 
You shape the world by your choices. You're a powerful being. You've misused your power, but you can surrender it to the, to the loving reign of God and, and, and step into action and use that power for good. So put your hands up on your heart like this. This is sort of um, Wonder Woman or Wakanda posture here. We're not fighting. We're just using our power for good, okay? And Jesus invites us to live and pray this prayer. Say it with me. Lead us in the way of justice. The fifth beatitude. I'm going to camp out just a little longer on this one. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In the kingdom of darkness, our first instinct is to judge and evaluate. This may be, it was maybe useful for how we developed our sense of a moral compass, but we tend to look at the world and other people and measure. So put your hand up like this. I used to watch this Canadian comedy show where one of the characters would look around at people. He'd stand in a public place and look at people and go, I crush you. I crush your head. I squish you. I squish your head. So look around the room a little bit and do some head squishing. Squish you. I squish you. I squish you. And our natural instinct is to look at others and evaluate Um, like something superficial, is that a good-looking person or a bad-looking person? Is that person um, posh or lower class? But even more, is that a moral or good person or not? And, um, And if we feel like they don't measure up, we feel contempt. And we want them to get their just deserves for how they don't, how they don't measure up to a standard that we have. But insidiously, we, we do this to ourselves too. Am I a good girl or a bad girl? A good boy or a bad boy? And we tend to, to measure and judge ourselves and live in contempt of how we don't measure up. We translate this into our, our relationships with one another. Get into these tit-for-tat relationships. If, um, if you wash the dishes, uh, I'll pick the kids up from school. Like, everything's got to be equal like that. And, and if you don't do what, you, what I think you should have done, I'm going to withhold what I was going to do for you, right? Trust me, that's not a good recipe for a healthy marriage or work partnership or, or anything. Jesus is inviting us to get out of this mentality of judgment. So slap it down. What's more accurate to reality? Is the world just eye for eye and tooth for tooth, or can we hope for something better? And what the Sermon on the Mount points to in all of Scripture is that we're not treated as we deserve. Would we want to live in a world where everyone gets exactly what they deserve? I definitely don't want to live in that world. Uh, I want to be treated better than my actions deserve. And it's possible because mercy triumphs over judgment. So when God looks at you and I, God doesn't go, failure doesn't measure up. God looks at you and I and says, I don't evaluate on that anymore. I sent my son to give his life so that we're not in that game anymore. And I see you through eyes of grace and mercy. And some of you probably know that psychologically, when we live in guilt and shame, it actually doesn't help us live better. We continue a cycle of of addiction, of feeling crap, and then trying to self-soothe, and then doing more destructive things over and over again. And so it's more healthy for our holiness to live in grace rather than uh, judgment. So how can we learn to, if, we've been, if we practice judgment, how can we learn to live in grace instead? Um, I think uh, I'm going to invite you to, this is, your, this is where you, it's your part of the, the talk. I'm going to invite you to stand up a second. And I need a volunteer. Will you come up on the stage with me? I want you to turn to another person. And let's try and experience some of this grace rather than judgment. I want you to put your hands up in the shape of a heart. And I want you to look at that person through the heart. That's grace. And it's pretty typical that it's a bit weird to do this. And you're, and you're giggling a little bit. 
But I'm going to invite you to work through the giggles, get serious, don't talk, and just look at that person. Let me tell you who you're looking at. You are looking at someone that the creator of the universe calls beloved, fearfully and wonderfully made, precious. See them for who they really are. C.S. Lewis said, you've never encountered a mere mortal. The people we live with, fight with, work with, if we could see who they really are, we'd be strongly tempted to bow down and worship them. See who you're looking at. Keep that gaze for a second. I want you to notice something. How does it feel to be looking at someone with eyes of grace, to see them as that precious? You might even want to whisper to that person right now, child of God, may you be well. Child of God, may you be well. Okay, now I want you to, um, for just a moment, keep your hands up, keep looking. Right now, somebody is looking at you and thinking good thoughts about you. <laughs> what, is it, what does it feel like to be seen under such a loving gaze right now? How is that for you? Okay, you can put your hands down, but a lot of people like to hug it out after they've been <laughs> peering into each other's souls. So... This is learning to see through eyes of grace and compassion is something that we can practice. Um, I got to do this this week a little bit. Um, in, in a group of years ago, we were trying to figure out how do we apply this teaching of Christ about grace and mercy to everyday life. And we noticed in the Gospels that the Gospel writers made, paid particular attention to how Jesus looked at people. He used his eyes to see people, and then there was a thought and a response associated with it. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. So I did some practice with this uh, a day before yesterday at Darling Harbor. I took about an hour and a half, and, I, and there's a lot of people to look at down there. And, uh, you know, first you got to get over your contempt of tourists, and I was able to do that because I'm a tourist. Uh, but but I, I thought I, every person I walk by, I want to look at their face and if I can catch their eye, I'm going to practice seeing who they really are. And I would, under my breath, I didn't say it out loud because they'd think I was weird, but I would, I would think, child of God, may you be well. Child of God, may you be well. I started smiling a little bit more. People started smiling at me. And I had to take a second look because my first response is, what do they look like? Do they think they're attractive? Are they, are they posh or low, lower class? Do I like how they're dressed or not? And in, what's, who, did, who did they vote for? Instead of that, <laughs> I wanted to just see the true them that God sees. And it totally changed my interactions. So I'd encourage you to try that as a practice. Second thing I'm committed to this week, because I'm in a group where we're, we're camping out on Blessed are the Merciful, is about how we talk. So much of the way we talk with one another is talk that reinforces contempt and judgment. Can you believe what she said or whatever it might be? Um, uh, what about that politician? And... Um, and so this week, I joined a group, and we made this promise to practice positive speech. That um, this week, I'm only speaking words of compassion and affirmation about myself and others and avoiding making critical or disparaging comments. I'm going to invite you. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. But would, would anybody dare to join me in this experiment of practicing compassion this week? Would you be willing to make a promise that for, uh, for the next seven days, you won't, you'll practice positive speech with me. If you're, if you're willing to, give me a thumbs up so I know I'm not alone. Awesome. A third thing I'm working on that I'd invite you to do about practicing compassion this week, living in the way of mercy, is um, about how we remember the past. All of us have people in our lives that have hurt us, caused pain to us, um, harsh words, neglect, um, ways that we were, we were touched inappropriately or, um, 
or not respected in some way. And it's very easy for us to carry resentments about those things and to rehearse those resentments. And so this is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, forgiven, you'll be forgiven. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, that we're liberated when we can let go of those resentments. There's a popular quote that I like that says, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping somebody else gets sick and dies. I want to punish you, but I'm really just punishing myself, right? It feels awful to live in resentment. So is there anybody that you need to forgive this week to let go of? Um, sometimes I think forgiveness is a process and I forgave once, but when the, when the hurt comes up again, I have to make the choice again to let go of the resentment uh, and not want, want them to be punished or to get even for what they've done. Uh, so uh, last year after I was here, Lisa and I went up to Port Augusta and I got to spend a, uh, a, a bit of time with an Aboriginal church up there. And we were talking about this because um, uh, about, about the struggle to forgive and let go. And um, something that I didn't plan to happen happened at the end of the service. I'd done this teaching, but those pe- many of those people have been in, they're related by blood or by marriage or been in the same church for a long time. So they've had lots of chances to wound each other. And people got up spontaneously after we met and just started going over to others and with tears in their eyes and giving each other hugs and saying, will you forgive me for how I've hurt you? And I don't, I don't want to hold on to resentment towards you anymore. I forgive you. And to see this healing come that I think is one of the most powerful things about the gospel. Did I forget to move? No, I did move over here for that, right? Okay, so, uh, but I'm back over here. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So um, when we were small, there was no divide between what we thought and felt and what we expressed. I'm hungry. Will you give me a gift? I just, I just poop my pants. This is what one, one-year-olds say, right? They, they have no filter. But you and I developed a filter that psychologists call a persona. So hold your hands up like this. I'm afraid that if you knew who I really am, you would reject me. So I'm showing you just this best part of me. But as you can see, the problem is that if I have my persona up and you have yours up, we're not really connecting. And if I do the same thing with God, I'm not really connecting with my creator either. And so this beatitude invites us from this dividedness to being wholehearted. Purity of heart isn't being perfect. Purity of heart means you step out of the shadows into the light. You tell the truth about yourself, trusting that if you tell the truth about yourself, God forgives, cleanses, and heals, 1 John 1, 9. And that if we can learn to do that with the people in our lives, that we'll have real, authentic relationships of intimacy. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs, is, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our first instinct is to think in terms of us versus them. So do like this, us versus them. Uh, my family, your family. My country, your country. My footy team, your footy team. And I think we do this because we're trying to feel, we want to be in the right group so we can feel good about ourselves, but it ends up dividing. And uh, it's a cause of war and so much strife and conflict. And so the way of the kingdom, reality, is that what we have in common is more than what we have as difference. And that Jesus is inviting us to reach past the differences to connect. So do that, reach out and connect. Sometimes part of this, like the one from the Sermon on the Mount, is if I've wronged you, I initiate reconciling with you. So maybe there's somebody you need to do that with. Uh, Beatitude 8, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness or justice. When we come into this world, if you don't treat me the way I want to be treated, my first instinct is this. How do you like that 1930s movie boxing? Do, do a little of this with me, right? Yeah, you, you didn't treat me how I want to be treated. I'm going to retaliate. 
well, I'm not that a courageous of a person, so what I usually do is, and you, you mistreated me, I'm going to go over here and talk and like take it out, try and get, get other people to be upset with you, right? This happens all the times in churches. It's why there's church splits, because we don't actually deal with the situation and, and the hurt. And Jesus said, well, well, let's just say this. When I retaliate when I'm mistreated, it perpetuates evil in the world. But the gospel calls us to something greater. That if we're willing to, like Jesus, before his accusers, he was silent. Surrender to the suffering that's inevitable to a divided world. That we cast our vote for righteousness and goodness and God's greater justice. So put your hands out like this. Pray this with me. Lead us in the way of surrender. Lastly, you guys are being real kind to me to let me try and get through not the whole of the Sermon on the Mount in one talk. But we're almost there. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. So psychologists and philosophers speculate that fear is the number one driver of human action. So do like this. Ultimately, it's fear of death. It's fear of what people think of us, right? And when we, don't, when we, when we act from fear, we do not act from love. And Jesus, in order to give his life for us, had to overcome fear to have courage. And, and I think what empowers that is the knowledge and the hope that death is not the end, that life comes after life. And so Jesus conquered this in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, and he invites us, pick up your cross, be courageous and fearless, and follow me into radical love. So put your hands out like this. And I'm going to invite you to pray this with me. Lord, lead us in the way of radical love. So if, um, if I was going to today have Shinko Rick ask me, Mark, what's the Jesus way? What do you, what, what do you want to be on about today? I think I'd have a better response today. And I'd be able to say, Rick, today I want to live with open hands, mourn what's broken, serve with self-respect, go all the way through those beatitudes and say, this is the new way, the new humanity, the way of the kingdom that I'm trying to live into and practice. It's a little known fact that Mahatma Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount every morning when he got up. And... Um, uh, and this is another one of those examples of how someone who we might consider an outsider to our faith tradition actually takes Jesus more seriously than we do, right? If, if Gandhi's going to take it that seriously, we should have the Sermon on the Mount memorized, right? Um, Gandhi um, was friends with a guy named E. Stanley Jones, who was a Christian missionary. And E. Stanley Jones, um, well, incidentally, wrote a book about Gandhi and um, that Martin Luther King Jr. read it, and it led to the civil rights movement in the United States. And um, uh, E. Stanley Jones wrote a little book about the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, um, in it, a little man in a loincloth in India picks out from the Sermon on the Mount one of its central principles, applies it as a method for human freedom, and the world, challenged and charmed, bends over to catch the significance of the great sight. It's important of what would happen if we would take the whole of the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to the whole of life, it would renew our Christianity and it would renew our world. So just imagine if we really learn to be citizens of the kingdom of light, how revolutionary that would be in our society, how it would change our world. If we could learn to live in the truth of the gospel and not just have it in our heads fascinating to me. Um, I, I, was telling, uh, I was telling Sam on the way over that um, I taught this team I was in Africa with uh, th this way of thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. And when you're living constantly with people, there's lots of opportunities to like mess up and so, and in how we talked and what we did. And so every day someone might say like, Mark, it sounds like you're doing like this. And I just want to invite you to do like this. Or it sounds like you're doing this. Hey, Jesus calls us to this as like kind of a kind reminder. Let's live in the kingdom of light. Let's, let's get beyond that old stuff. And 
I think it's so important to do because however we learn to think and act, we train ourselves for. Uh, I'm, I'm friends with a guy named Richard Rohr, and he, he told me once, he said, um, he studied a bit of neuroscience, and he said, um, people uh, who are older often only have, because, because of the way our brains work, neurons that fire together wire together. So if you've spent your life rehearsing resentment, judgment, and anxiety, at a certain point in your life, the rest of the, um, the, rest of the, like the, the, the synapses in your brain have kind of died off so that only those channels work. So there are older people who um, only can think judgment, resentment, and anxiety. You probably have known people like this. You probably know older people, people older than you, who are also full of gratitude and encouragement and deep affection for others. And it has to do with how they've practiced life. And so um, I'm encouraging us to learn to practice well to live in the truth. If you want some help with this, we've got some resources here today that this talk is based on. Uh, one's called Practicing the Way of Jesus, and the other is this, a book I wrote actually called The Ninefold Path, The Way of Jesus, that's very, it'd be like almost a souvenir from my talk today that has some short reflections and some ideas from practices. And I understand some of you are in connect groups or community groups. I'm doing a training to follow up on my time here in Australia for leaders, six weeks of two uh, hour and 45 minute Zoom calls where we together take on practices, and my hope is that the people who sign up for this will, will use the ninefold path in, a, in their connector community group so we can see more people learning to, learning to live in these life-giving ways of Jesus. We stand with me, and I'd like to pray with you a prayer inspired by the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to invite you to take on these postures that we've explored together as we do this. And thank you all for letting me come and share and, um, and, try, and try and talk through uh, like so much in a short amount of time, but, uh, but I, wa- I wanted to give you a, a compelling picture of this whole thing. Lord, today, may we live with open hands. You can say it with me. Mourn what's broken. Serve with self-respect. Use our power for good. Look with compassion. Walk in honesty. Reach past difference. Suffer for love. And live fearlessly, following the way of radical love. Amen. For more info and all the latest Northside news and events, visit northsidechurch.org.au or download our app today.